Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. And now the storm has passed, and you're dealing with what's left in its wake. Your nation has your back, and we'll be with you until the job is done. President Biden in disaster-stricken Florida calls on Congress to act after summer of climate disasters. I think I could be trapped here for a couple more days. Nevada's Burning Man becomes newest victim of climate extremes, plus... Fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear. 2024 presidential campaign kicks off with more denial and more delay. And less DeSantis. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Nobody can deny the impact of climate crisis. Um, There's nobody intelligent can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. That's better. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, it looks like the climate denial does continue even after an insane summer. We're now officially in fall. Everything should be fine now, right? <laughs> no, unfortunately, it won't be oh. because the summer of extremes is just as extreme and getting extremier. Uh-oh. Two historic hurricanes hit the U.S. on both coasts while we were out, and new record-shattering extreme heat waves hit around the world. First, a follow-up in the historic West Coast landfall of Hurricane Hillary, which rapidly intensified over unusually warm Pacific Ocean waters. New damage estimates now top $10 billion across the West, and officials in Death Valley National Park have closed the park indefinitely due to extensive flood damage from Hillary. Really? On the East Coast, just a few days later, Hurricane Idalia also rapidly intensified, also fueled by record-hot ocean waters in the Gulf of Mexico. It hit as a powerful Category 3 in the Big Bend region of Florida that hadn't seen a landfalling hurricane in more than a century. Idalia wrought havoc from Florida to the Carolinas and is now on track to become 2023's costliest single climate disaster for the U.S., with preliminary estimates of loss and damage at 10 to $20 billion, further straining Florida's rickety property insurance industry. And if my math is right, we've still got two more months of storm season? Actually, three. Three! I'm sure it'll be fine. The record hot waters in the Gulf of Mexico also generated extreme heat, with Gulf Coast cities like New Orleans and Houston recording new all-time high hottest temperatures. And yes, human-caused climate change is clearly connected to these record high ocean temperatures and the rapid intensification of storms. It's not just down in Florida and New Orleans. It's like 90 degrees up in Minnesota today. Yep, and the U.S. Gulf Coast has now seen an unprecedented eight major hurricane land falls in just the last seven years. Uh, Did I say I'm sure it'll be fine? In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, declined to meet with President Biden on a routine tour of the damage. Over the weekend, Biden continued without DeSantis, promising ongoing federal support for Florida. And we're not going anywhere, the federal government. We're here to help the state as long as it takes. 
anything they need related to these storms. Biden on Monday also called on Congress to boost funding for FEMA's disaster assistance programs, which are already running out of money, as happens nearly every year now due to accelerating frequency and magnitude of extreme weather disasters that now hit the U.S. every three weeks or so. Weird. I wonder why. Speaking of politics, while we were out, Republican 2024 presidential candidates doubled down on climate science denial and delay in their first debate. DeSantis and the others wouldn't say whether they accept mainstream climate science, that climate change is caused by humans burning fossil fuels, but fast-talking entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy outright called climate change a hoax. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And of course, now new reporting reveals that Ramaswamy has at least $50 million invested in a fund dedicated to drilling as much climate warming fossil fuels as possible. If anyone knows hoaxes, it's Vivek Ramaswamy. Finally, more unprecedented extreme weather hitting in unexpected places also caused chaos at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada. A climate protest at the start of the event caused an hours-long traffic jam, and then an unusual torrential storm turned the desert into treacherous mud, trapping tens of thousands of people amid overflowing latrines and shortages of food and water. One death at the festival is under investigation, and this latest disaster demonstrates once again that climate change change intensified extreme weather events can strike everywhere at any time. Well, they went to the desert knowing it'd be about 115 degrees, so maybe this was nice. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. For me as a woman, claiming my voice has been a big theme in my life. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Chicago. And part of claiming that voice is reclaiming my spirituality with a feminist lens informed by womanism and other kinds of theology, queer theology as well, so that I can really be rooted in that spiritual power that that our faiths offer us. The Reverend Jennifer Butler has spent the last three decades strengthening and rebuilding the progressive faith movement. A frequent guest on this show, last year Jen stepped down from a long tenure leading the influential nonprofit Faith in Public Life and has just launched Jennifer S. Butler Consulting, bringing her unique skill set to causes worth supporting. We'll be talking about this new initiative, her years at Faith in Public Life, and the opportunities she sees for creating change going forward on this week's State of Belief. Thank you for listening. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization of the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation podcast I want to make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. 
If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. From LGBTQI plus equality to racial equity to gender parity to economic dignity to reproductive justice, all in the name of an expansive, inclusive, multi-faith vision, Reverend Jen Butler has been a leading advocate for many years. She founded the nonprofit Faith in Public Life in 2005 and led the influential organization for 17 years. Today, she continues to be an influential voice on key issues facing us and has just launched Jennifer S. Butler Consulting, serving nonprofit organizations, think tanks, and government agencies seeking to develop a faith-based partnership to build a democratic and pluralistic world. And I am grateful for this chance to catch up with her on this show of State of Belief. Reverend Jen, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Looking back on the 17 years at Faith in Public Life, what are a couple moments that you just think, I did that thing? I know. You know, oh I my mean, gosh. isn't that great? I mean, First you can of all, really say- I know. I just, I feel like so fortunate in my life because I'm so passionate about liberation theology and feminist theology, right? And in our era, we saw a lot of that under attack and waning. The social gospel, actually, that mm. runs in your family mm. is, you know, something that has driven my life. And yet I grew up in a climate where no one talked about the Jesus who said, I've come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. And so then, you know, I'm seeing that happen all around me. I'm in my first position with the Presbyterian Church, working at the United Nations, working globally on women's rights. And I see all these attacks on the women's justice programming in our denomination. And I'm just dismayed, you know, and disillusioned. And so I start to think about what what can we do better? How do we fix this? And I get to step into creating this faith and public life organization that addresses some of the deficits on our side that enabled the Christian right to be so strong. So I just feel so blessed because rarely do you get to see a problem and feel so miserable about it, but then be able to have the wherewithal to do something about it. And so I really feel like I was blessed or lucked out or something to be able to be at this nexus and, and do this kind of work. And it was, address it. It's incredible. <laughs> and I, I, it's very interesting. I, it, it feels different, doesn't it? I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like we're less on our heels yes. somehow yes. and um, and less tepid. Yes. It was just like a, a sense of like, oh, you know, I'm sorry for trying to bring in the conversation about um, issues of justice, issues of equity, issues of inclusion, mm-hmm. issues of dignity mm-hmm. that were like, you know, can we please talk about this at the end of the important conversation? <laughs> you know, and, and instead recognize that actually – we're carrying on a tradition that has been a part of American Christianity. Yes. It's not like we're inventing something. This is a part of it. And so I feel like what Faith and Public Life has done, with Interfaith Alliance has done, what BJC has yes. done, with so many great organizations, not to mention, of course, the Black Church and all of the various 
amazing groups have kind of stood up and say, actually, look around. Oh, wait, we're actually the majority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are the major- moral majority, you know, not Jerry Falwell, no, but we are the moral inter- majority. It it's really interesting. I mean, let's, let's get into that. So, like, how did that manifest itself in the ways, like, that you saw Faith in Public Life and other organizations working? Were there moments yeah. during those 17 years where you're like, okay, this is what it means to show up. Yes. Yeah. So I, I will say one turning point was just convincing everybody that it was okay to speak from our specific faith tradition to challenge discriminatory laws or white supremacy. You know, early on, a lot of people were reticent to do that. We felt like we couldn't bring our specific faith language to the public square. We had to kind of scrub it of all religiosity for it to be okay. And part of that was we were reacting to what the Christian right had done. We didn't want to be like them. But what what ended up happening was that they ended up dominating that space. They ended up defining what mor- morality and what Christianity in particular meant. And so they had this kind of moral influence and high ground that we ought to have had. So so we did a lot of, um, you know, sort of training and, and support to faith leaders to really encourage them just to lean into their, their spiritual, theological, biblical voice, scriptural right. voice. Um, a turning point was um, when Obama was elected to office, he made passing health care reform one of his top priorities, of course. And the faith community together, a number of us teamed up and launched an enormous nationwide health care campaign that ended up ma- having a definitive, definitive dif- difference on passing health care, uh, passing the Affordable Care Act. And uh, the way we did that was there were six states that were key in the debate we organized faith leaders within those states. We actually organized a very broad coalition that included pro-life and pro-choice religious leaders, um, so conservative and liberal religious leaders, to say this bill is going to help all of our interests. We need to pass health care reform because at the time the Christian right was trying to use abortion as a wedge issue to kill the bill. Right. So we didn't let that happen, and we were able to get press attention to a broad range of faith leaders to be sure that that bill passed we know it was instrumental because Ben Nelson in particular in Nebraska featured our leaders in his ad explaining to his constituents why he had voted for the bill when he mm. came under attack. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I think, mobilizing to increase power, yeah. to increase representation. And it's in some ways it's, you know, neutralizing this assumed uh, mantle of religion that the the Christian right has has taken, kind of starting in the seventies, and working through um, the aughts, and and really, you know, saying okay, and frankly, the press fed into that. What I tried to do at Huffington Post, and uh, it was just to say, there's all kinds of other religious leaders you need yes. to be paying attention to. Yes, that don't just go to the lo- the local like name that you always go to, and that I think that has also changed. Yes, is that the the press kind of wised up and said, okay, yes, you know the evangelical voice has a voice, mm-hmm. but it's one of many voices. It mm-hmm. is not the voice, and we can't just say, oh well, we we wanted a religious point of view, so we asked you know, <laughs> the right. white guy, and I just think that that was that. It's also been part of what, you know, the legacy has been and, and you speaking up has been so important. I think that's that's been important. Yeah, it's um, a little bit of media advocacy. But, you know, to be honest, they needed something to cover. And that meant we had to organize more effectively and we had to tell our story because not only were we not using our specific faith language, we had almost like downsized all of our communications strategies 
within the more progressive-leaning denominational structures. Right. Oh, my God. I want just to underline what you said. And I just had this conversation with someone else. It's like, oh, the press never covers the good things. It's like, show them what they can cover. Like, as someone who was, like, doing journalism primarily for five years, it was like, then do something that we can make a story out of. Exactly. Don't just tell me to cover it. Tell me, what are we doing? What are you doing? Create a spectacle if you need to. Just give me something. Give me a a, a peg. We weren't very smart about that. And one yeah. thing that we really, I felt so passionate about, I was like, we missed the boat on social media. We missed we did. the boat. We were so slow. Uh, you know, I mean, we were so slow. And I, you know, at one point I was like, if you add up every mainstream denomination in Christianity and put them alongside Joel Osteen, yes. just one. Yes, yes. We weren't reaching a quarter of the size of one religious leader who had figured out that social media mattered and that the internet mattered. That's exactly and, and right. And I remember speaking about this, and people were like, "Oh, that fad," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, but but I think what we're we're wising up right now. Yes. And we're not going to be flat-footed anymore. Yeah, um, you really saw the turn during the Trump presidency. Yeah. You know, so you had this white supremacist candidate elected to office and all those years we had spent building a broad coalition and really getting people used to using media, we just were able to jump out front into the space and draw a moral line in the sand Mm. against the Trump administration. Not, you know, mainly because of what he was already showing. He had appointed a cabinet of bigotry, you know, a cabinet that was full of white supremacists, Steve Bannon, uh, Jeff Sessions, so the faith community got up out front right away saying, you know, what the, calling it what it was. That's a really positive way to think of it, because I think of, you know, the election of Donald Trump as a real failure. Yes. Um, but but I do think like the moment it happened, we were like, OK, boom, uh, like we got a you know, the women's march happened. And then one of the great moments was um, when the Muslim ban. Yes. Was, was uh, introduced. And just immediately, people flooding, people of all faith backgrounds, saying, not on our watch, and we're going to get out there, and we're going to be at airports, and using social media. Like, that's what they understood, everybody understood. It's like, we're going to be not only going there, we're going to be live streaming this, we're going to be showing the country what actual America looks like. I think it was one of the great displays of religious solidarity against authoritarianism. It was. And there are a couple other key highlights. I mean, one, Trump attacked the refugee agencies and and refugees, and it was it's religious groups that run all of the refugee agencies. Right. And so we had this front lines experience and even very conservative congregations had the experience of helping to settle refugee families. And so we were able to communicate that something was truly amiss, you know, and to sort of break down that partisanship that sometimes has happened uh, because of how religion has been used. and then, um, and then, of course, with the child separation policy that Jeff right. Sessions in the zero tolerance policy, um, we were able to really get out there quickly. And I know Faith and Public Life organized coalitions of women to go down to the border and mm-hmm. say how immoral and, you know, incomprehensible this policy was. Right. So the faith community was, and then, of course, um, there were the attacks on the health care bill itself, the Affordable Care Act, which the faith community across a broad spectrum of us, again, had organized to pass that in the first place. And so we did rally after rally and civil disobedience. I know I did civil disobedience with Tracy Blackman and Reverend Barber, and that kind of sparked a whole 
you know, series of actions by the faith community to contest that. I, I want to spend a little bit of time on your book, Who Stole My Bible? I remember seeing that title and being like, oh, genius, that is so funny. <laughs> but it like it does feel like you're like, what what just happened? Yeah. Uh, and so tell me about like what was the genesis of writing that book? And Mike, it feels very relevant today. It is. Yeah, the subtitle is Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. And what the the thing that sparked the book the book was, you know, in the Trump era, I realized that I really needed to continue to get more spiritually grounded, mm. you know. And it's hard sometimes as an activist, I'm an active person, right? And so it's just hard to spend that time in prayer and meditation that I need to. But every great activist has done that, has cultivated those spiritual mm. disciplines. And so as I found myself on the front lines, I would find these fragments of scripture going through my brain. And then I'd go back uh, home and I'd, I'd be like, why is this phrase of scripture going through my head? And I would look deeper into scripture and realize even at a deeper level than I ever had before that, that scripture truly is a handbook for activists and for people who are resisting tyrants. And I started to go deeper and deeper into the study often relying on on Jewish scholars because, quite frankly, our anti-Semitism has prevented us from understanding the Bible in the way that it should be understood. Mm. So, for example, I looked at the creation story, and I realized, thanks to a, a Jewish um, uh, expert, that over and over God creates and says it's good. At the time, the Near Eastern creation myths said that the world was born out of violence and that human beings were created to be slaves of God. Mm. Our story says everything in creation is good and every single person is created in God's own image. Mm. And then it declares a Sabbath, a day of rest, so that people aren't working 24-7 as slaves. It was a moral indictment. The creation story is a moral indictment of the creation myths of its day. And they are meant to put a belief structure in place that leads toward respecting human dignity for every single person on mm. this planet and for the planet itself because creation is good. Wow. So that is a more that's just a moral reversal in the world and a lot of people will say that that sort of that Jewish creation story is what laid the foundation in modern times for the very notion of human rights. This idea uh -huh. of human dignity is the foundation of human rights and democracy. Right, right. If uh, if humanity is created good, and God, and you believe in God, then you have to do everything you can to protect the dignity of every human being who are, have been created good. I had the privilege and the pleasure of hearing you speak at the parliament. Oh, yeah. And you were making connections that I, I knew, but I hadn't really quite consolidated. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing right now globally that connects what's happening in the United States to a, a broader context. It does, yes. Yeah. So what we're experiencing in the United States, this kind of democratic backsliding, the rise of an autocratic leader that just will not go away, right? That is happening around the world. So we're part of a global phenomenon in which illiberal leaders are seizing power and they're using the democratic system against itself to... Um, to to establish autocracies. They stay in power and they shore up power and control by using legal methods and, and dismantling the system little by little. We saw that in the U.S. It's happening 
all over the world on every continent. And it's happening in large part because of global communications. It's happening because of social media. Populist leaders can stoke fears and, and pull on um, particular aspects of human identity to install themselves as leaders in a way that they couldn't before. So before there would have been gatekeepers, now they're able to get around that and, and create a populist movement that keeps them in power. And one of the key ways in which they're doing that is by using religious nationalism, the manipulation of religion to stoke fear and to factionalize their citizenry. So what we're experiencing in the U.S. is actually a global struggle, and I'm really turning my attention to how we intercept that, in part because the religious right or the Christian right in the United States has been one of the major players in making that happen. They've exported the U.S. culture wars around the globe to Africa, to South America, to Eastern Europe. And very quickly, they're introducing anti-LGBTQ and anti-choice policies that are incredibly violent and horrific, you know, even carry the death penalty in many countries for being LGBTQ. And those policies are moving very quickly. They weren't issues before, but they're getting introduced and they're just quickly spreading like a virus around the globe. The reason they're doing that is again, to factionalize the population and get them to line up behind an autocratic leader to spread fear and um, to also create social hierarchies that create a good climate basically for autocracy. Mm. You know, so if you want to have an autocratic country, you have to establish social hierarchies and in groups and out groups so that some people can buy into that power system, even though it's horrible for humanity and for the planet, and then out groups that they can feel good about being superior to. So it's all about creating social hierarchy to establish a climate so that this tyrant or autocrat can stay in power. We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with Reverend Jen Butler. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast. Go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, in honor of Labor Day, we're looking at the trade-offs some workers are making in order to have healthcare. What choices? are families forced to make when they can't afford to insure everyone? To find out, we spoke to Rose Roach, National Coordinator for the Labor Campaign for Single Payer. When you're paying something like 25% of your paycheck or your family's budget towards health care, there's going to be an impact there. People are making decisions on whether or not to buy that medication, whether to take two pills or cut it in half, whether or not they should even bother going into the doctor's office because maybe they will find out it's something worse and they could end up in bankruptcy. I have experienced a situation where a 
worker had to choose which child to cover under health care because you pay more for family than employee plus one or for employee only and wasn't able to pay for both children to be covered because that was going to come out of her paycheck and she was a single mom and couldn't afford to do it. You know, Sophie's choice is in the way that we should be doing health care in this country and parenting. As it turned out, the one that wasn't covered ended up in an accident. And, and so then, you know, it spins the whole family, right? I mean, then you've got to look at potential medical bankruptcy and no other industrialized nation in the world has something called medical bankruptcy. Get the full code WAC story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. More of these solar panels are being manufactured in the United States. Um, it used to be that almost all of the solar panels came from China. And then after there were some tariffs put on the Chinese solar panels for a number of different reasons, there's more made in America solar that's, that's being installed on rooftops. And that is primarily the result of public policy. Um, it, it is providing the right kind of incentives to bring the cost of solar down for people and also to incentivize the manufacture of those solar panels in the United States of America. And so this is a boom. Um, it is irreversible except if conservatives take all the incentives away and put them back for fossil fuels, pretending like we're not living in the world we are. My neighbors, they have a tile roof. They have a certain area on their property that is perfect for the panels and size and everything else. And we don't all have that, everybody, you know, in, in this hood. Of course, right. We have power outages. Now, I got to be honest, in um, my studio, which I do TV from too, and um, I, I have to give it to Fox. I, I have a generator in here. And when our house is dark, I can still work. Can't do anything else, but I can still work, right? Um, even even though the electricity has gone out, it's like it's plugged into the wall. But yeah. my neighbors don't have that. They have a solar-powered generator, and they have solar panels. And when we're in the dark lighting candles, we always see the lights on at their house. And when it's triple temperatures, right, my kids are over there in their pool, <laughs> which is heated when the sun goes down because we live in a desert here in L.A., people forget. And we're all just like, everybody's like, his name's Roger. We're like, Roger, what are you doing? So honestly, Roger is helping, you know, to solarize our, our entire neighborhood. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in conversation today with the Reverend Jen Butler, founder and longtime leader of Faith in Public Life. One of the things that 
that you talked about, which you know uh, you've definitely seen across the country, is this um, interesting new alignment around groups opposing uh, of the same outgroups. Mm-hmm. So you see in the United States many Putin fans. Yes, you know this this incredible <laughs> autocratic, very dangerous person uh, yes. who there was a lot of suspicion of. Putin, who was part of the KGB and all of that, and yet he's kind of become a hero figure mm-hmm. among some on the Christian right because of his alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church. That's right. And how they talk about queer people. Yes, yes. And that is spreading around the globe. So what happened was um, the the Christian right Early on, some of the organizations ended up having a meeting in Russia with Russian intellectuals back in 1997, and they established sort of an affinity for each other. And then when Putin came to power for like the third time, he decided to embrace Russian orthodoxy as a ideology to unite the state instead of using communism. So he moved away from communism, which is interesting in and of itself, right, because you know, I grew up in the era where everybody was talking about the dangers of atheistics, you know, secular communism and that spreading around the globe. But uh, Putin did an about face, embraced religion and then borrowed these ideas from these Christian right groups that have been active in Russia and started instituting anti-LGBTQ and anti-Muslim, anti-abortion or anti-choice legislation in the country. This catches the notice of this three-time presidential contender, Patrick Buchanan, the famous culture warrior. And he begins writing these really positive blog posts about Putin and about the Kremlin, about Russia, saying that they are basically the savior of Christianity. Mm. And that uh, the most famous was, whose side is God on now? By which he meant, God is now on the side of Russia rather than on the side of the United States. Why? Because he is cracking down on LGBTQ, abortion, and Muslim people in the country. Mm. And so Patrick Buchanan is extremely influential on the Christian right and among white Christians who, especially those who kind of lean toward Christian nationalism. Mm. And so he began to write profusely about this. And I I tell a story that uh, probably, you know, led me to sort of recognize what was going on in part. My my father, you know, when I went on a mission trip to Cuba back in the late 90s, early 2000s, was terrified. Here I was going to this communist country, and mm. I came back talking about some of the benefits and some of the interesting things Cubans had done and um, the conditions in the country. And he was just extremely upset because it was a communist country. By 2014, I found out he had been sort of brought in uh, to this kind of Uh, propaganda that was sweeping the internet around Putin and Russian Orthodoxy being the savior of kind of Western Christendom. So I found on his Facebook page, you know, links to um, this kind of belief system. And then I found actually Russian badges and his belongings after he died that he had been planning to put on his motorcycle jacket. And then, you know, soon after that, I read a study by Samuel Perry, who's done so much great work on Christian nationalism, showing that there's an overlay between those people who hold to the tenets of Christian nationalism and American support for um, intervention in Ukraine and affinity for Putin and solidarity with Russia. So that sort of disinformation is going back and forth between the U.S. Christian right 
and Russia. And Putin is basically weaponizing Christian nationalism throughout the globe to sort of advance a culture war that benefits his power structure. Right. He basically wants to say that human rights and democracy are a secular construct and they're anti-religious. Mm. So when when oh. some people hear that word secular, they hear anti-religious instead of pluralistic. What's meant right. when we say the secular state, we mean pluralistic state. Right. He's trying to galvanize the world against right. democracy, human rights, and multilateral institutions like the United Nations that enforce those rights. Right. Oh. Well, you know, th- but the, that story shows that this is very personal for you. It is. This is not an abstraction. Yes. Like this is something that you, you're swimming in these waters. Um, we're all swimming in these waters, but they're, these are waters that you know very well. How, how, what was your relationship with your father like as far as, you know, he must have known of your work. Yes, yeah. And and here he's holding these beliefs how do you navigate that? That is such a good question. So, yeah, I grew up in the Bible Belt. You know, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm coming of age in the Reagan 80s. Um, I have a born-again experience. I'm trying to figure out what I believe about faith, and I read Jesus saying, I've come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. Mm. And at the time, you know, I had grown up in a desegregated, very integrated public school in Atlanta, Georgia. I was like the first generation to go to an integrated public school in Atlanta because they hadn't begun to do that until the 1970s, right? Mm -hmm. So it was Brown in the 50s, and then desegregating schools doesn't actually happen in the 70s because Southerners avoided it through a variety of methods, in part by creating private Christian white segregation academies, right? So I go to this public school. I grew up in a multiracial context. I'm taught solely by black women uh, until fifth grade. Then I get moved into what I now know was a white Christian segregation academy. Uh-huh. So I have this horrible experience there and um, can't quite name it, don't have the words to describe it, right? So I'm growing up in this context and then it's the 80s, Reagan comes along and Christians for some reason are um, kind of falling for him. I'm a big Jimmy Carter fan, you know, and I, I don't quite understand why that's happening given given my belief system. And so my whole life I think has been a journey to try to figure that out. I had to go overseas. I joined the Peace Corps, and then I went to seminary to study theology. And it wasn't until I learned about liberation and feminist theologies that I understood what my faith was. I had the words. Like, uh-huh. the faith was there. Mm. You know, it was in my, sort of like, in my heart, my soul, and I had decided to follow Jesus, but I didn't have the language for mm. it. And that that just not having the language prevents you from, like, d- being able to articulate it to others, right. to share it, and to put it into action, right? So, like, right. language is just so important, and analysis is so important. It's so—I just want to pause there, because I, I love that you're saying that, because I do think it's almost like poetry. When you read a poem, and you're like, yes! Yes! And then uh, theology can be the same way, and yes. it's like, okay, like, I couldn't figure out what I actually believed yeah. until those I read those <laughs> words, and I'm like, yes! Yes, that's it! It so, is. It is a— it is like a form of revelation. It is. It's the reason that it matters what we put out there in communication because it, it can change lives. It can. It's not like secondary. It's like so important. And so, it changed my life. It yeah. was a womanist <laughs> theologian, Dolores Williams. I read her book, was, Sisters yes, in the Wilderness. I and that, I was like, I never believed this, like Jesus died on the cross 
because of an angry God that wanted to nail him up there. How could a loving God do that, right? No, Jesus died to to liberate us. Yeah, uh, they, He died because of our sins, not right, for our right, sins, because right. we couldn't accept who he was as this great liberator that opposed the dominance of Rome and wanted to spread a, an ethic of love. So, I, so that I, I, saved I, I, my life yeah, to learn I, and, that. And I was, uh, you mentioned like the, the backlash against women as... Because I was at I was at Union when that all was going down in the Presbyterian Church, and That's she was right. being attacked. That's right. Like she was singled out. Yes. As like the problem. That's right. And it's Dolores. like you know, and she was like you know, of course, this amazing uh, woman. Uh, I remember being in the uh, in the halls at Union, and she said they ordained me because she was not ordained. Ah, but they, they, the, the, her oh, that's right. Her opponents started putting reverend, you know, this reverend. <laughs> and, and, and she was like, I'm a theologian. I'm not a reverend. You know, like, but it was just, it was very funny. They ordained me. I remember her saying that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so incredible. I just, yeah. And so here I had read her works. And yeah. then the next year, this conference happens and the right, the right starts demonizing her right. and right. people start losing their jobs. And so that was very disillusioning. And it was actually, you asked about my dad. At that time, so there's a, a conservative rag, I call it, you know, tabloid that goes around the Presbyterian church called the Presbyterian Lay Layman or the Lay Lay it's a it's a newspaper that's right wing news. And he got a hold of that uh. and he started reading about that. And so he and I ended up having a number of fights over feminist theology yeah. and womanist theology. And for we had been close because he also was, you know, very committed Christian and we shared, you know, a love for scripture. And our relationship really fell apart at that time. And it was extremely painful because we had been very close. Um, and it never fully recovered. Um, although, you know, I worked at it over the years. And I think that's what gave me such a heart for trying to go back and pull people out of that ide- ideology. Mm. I saw where it came from in him, the deep fears, uh, the depression that he struggled with, the sort of apocalypticism that he had in his soul and I felt like, you know, I felt a sense of um, frustration with him, but also a sense of deep compassion and sadness for him. I felt like that kept him kind of imprisoned in fear mm. in a way that you don't want to see someone you love living, right? Mm. And so to this day, a lot of the work that I've done has been to reach out to white Christians in particular, and it's why I wrote the book, to reach out to them to help give them another way forward. Because I think a lot of times the way we as progressives come at issues, we we tend to end up making people choose, feel like they have to choose between their faith and a different way of seeing abortion or LGBTQ rights. Instead, we should be helping them understand how their faith connects to how they treat other people mm. and the kinds of ways we can creatively go at challenges within society to show compassion for all people. I think that's so important. And it, you know, it is, you know, it, it's so important to humanize yes. people yes. because, you know, I, I grew up within like kind of the more liberal Christian tradition. So yeah. I don't have an immediate connection. Um, like you, you, it kept you honest in a way. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a compliment. I mean, it, it, I do not envy you, mm. but you know, you, you, you knew of what you were speaking. Mm. Um, and you know, I do think it's it's people can change. People can change. They can, yeah. You know, um, 
But it's hard for people to change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people white-knuckle it, um, you know, yes. because otherwise it's like, if I let go, what what do I have? That's right. And, um, and you know, it's, it's a really interesting balance, as far as I can see, between trying to convince people who are really, you know, I think doing injury to our country. Like, how do yes. we reach out to them and how do we convince them? How do we do bridge building? That's like a really important calling. It's actually kind of not my calling. <laughs> you know, I don't have, I, you know, I mean, that's yes. a very particular skill set and it's really important. Some people are doing it so well. I'm kind of right now, I'm kind of like, how do we build power to create, a, you know, some sort of um, protection? That's right. Um, and and I think both are needed yes. to have a good democracy. I, you can't just do one or the other. And, you know, I, there's people on my, you know, I work with and people we collaborate with and on my staff who are very good at that, you know, bridge building work. Yeah. I've, you know, I found it was just like I had to, I felt I had to leave too much of myself. Yes. Uh, in order to like, you know, have it be acceptable to be acceptable. But I think that's also, it's my own, like, this is something I still have to work on, but I, I just admire your heart for it, Mm, as mm -hmm, they say. mm -hmm. And, uh, but also like you coupled that with the real sense of we have to build power over here to make sure that people aren't hurt. That's right. Yeah. At Faith and Public Life, we launched programs to build power in the the black belt of Georgia, for example, and in Florida to work with black voters, faithful voters to mm-hmm. uh, help create systems where they could more easily turn out to vote, to be sure, especially because in these rural areas, that's where a lot of voter suppression happens. Right. And so we worked at that. So we, we launched a whole lot of programs to mobilize the base and to galvanize coalitions. And we also continued to try to find a way to build as broadly as we could to mobilize the right voices for the right moment that could swing that moment in the debate. But, you know, what we need to do now is just continue to shift culture. And there's another kind of conversion that I've also been interested in, not just in try to swing people who are like moderate, you know, you can't necessarily reach the hardcore, but bring the moderates over, but also to convert our own people to really believe in their faith and to be proud of their respective traditions Mm -hmm to root themselves in it because we need spiritual courage in this moment and we need those spiritual practices and to articulate it publicly, to really believe in themselves. I think we lost confidence in our own voice. And I know for me as a woman, claiming my voice has been a big theme theme in my life. And part of claiming that voice is reclaiming my spirituality with a feminist lens informed by womanism and other kinds of theology, queer theology as well. So that I can really be rooted in that spiritual power that that our faiths offer us, and it's a very convincing voice. Like people can sense it when they're. Uh, so I think I think that's amazing. Talk to me a little bit about what it feels to be doing consulting because you can really choose yeah. who you work with, and um, in some ways, decide what are the levers of change that you want to emphasize. And that's so right. what. Like, what is your, like, lens right now? This is pretty new that you're completely in this new consulting. <laughs> yes. So um, what are the – who are you looking at saying, hey, are th- how could I maybe help them 
to do what they want to do. What are some areas that you're interested in working with? Yeah, so um, I've really bounced back into this international space where I started when I worked for the Presbyterian United Nations office. And when I was there, I ended up writing a book about the globalizing Christian right called Born Again, the Christian Right Globalized. And so, you know, as I've said, since then, that that coalition, I, I, I predicted it could globalize and become a major force against human rights in the world. And it has done that. And it's now funded by Russian oligarchs and in league with Viktor Orban and all the tyrants of the world, Putin. And so I'm designing a response for that. And as I've gone around to international organizations and, uh, you know, government agencies and, and NGOs that work globally, I'm realizing that this has reached a tipping point and they're really eager for help and how they engage the religious community. And this is something I've thought about all the time I was at FPL. I used to joke with people, well, we're going to offer, we're going to open an international wing someday. And of course I knew that that was not really doable because we had so much on our hands in the U S but I'm now able to go back in there and I can't believe how fast this work is moving. You know, after I spoke at the parliament yesterday, for example, a, a um, high-ranking religious leader, and I, I won't say who he is because I, I think you know his work is very dangerous, from Eastern Europe came over and spoke with me and said, everything you said in your presentation was dead on, and here's what's going on in my country. And we proceeded to talk about it, and they want to bring me over to talk further about it. Um, so everywhere I go, people are really very concerned about this dynamic and wanting to design a solution. And so I'm consulting with government agencies and large human rights NGOs to find a solution. You know, one of my big like kind of soapboxes over the years has been like, we got to pay attention to the internet. And I don't, <laughs> I mean, it seems like, you know, that should not have been a hard sell. It should not. But in the 2000s, people were like, stop talking about that. That yes. is like not, we have to talk about things that are real. And it's everything now. I mean, it, it is what's driving this wave of autocratization around the globe. You know, it, exactly. if it weren't for that, we wouldn't be having this spreading so quickly. Well, and in the United States, it's very interesting. And I'm sure you have talked to pastors as well. Conservative pastors are freaked out because QAnon has infected the evangelical community to such an extent that even very conservative pastors are being you know, thrown out of churches because right. they're not preaching QAnon. That's right. I mean, it's wild to me. It is. Um, and, you know, we're, we're we, we just, this is technology that moved on upon us so fast and we really have not had a chance to process it. But, but it is like, uh, it is, it is going to impact us and, and we need to like, what does truth mean? I mean, like yes. that's, is, you know, this like idea of like truth, yeah, uh, it's just going to be, you know, one of the most like uh, gut wrenching moments to me in the beginning of the Trump administration was when Kelly, Con Wait, what was her name? And Conway, yeah, Kelly, Kelly Conway, Conway yeah. said, she said, oh, we have alternative facts. Yes, yes. And what do you build a reality on, especially for us as people who like, you know, profess you know, a truth, a religious truth, you know, I mean, if everything is alternative facts, yeah. how do we have a shared society? How do we have a exactly. shared worldview? I mean, and I think it, that's how empires come to be oppressive empires. Like I've become, I've, I've come to see that story about Pontius Pilate a little differently. He says, 
you know, when when Jesus is brought before him, he says, what is truth? You know, and I think what he's saying there is, I represent the empire. I control truth. I control what truth is. And so I write about, in my book, I write about the activist strategies to overcome that. One that congregations have done well throughout uh, many decades is this idea of encounter of going over and, and seeing and listening firsthand mm. to the ver- to the voices most the people most affected wow. by a problem. Yeah. You know, and so that's why we took people to the border to see firsthand what was happening with child separation right. and it's what you know hundreds of religious organizations do is help people put people in conversation so they can see first thing it's just what coming out is about, you know, in the LGBTQ right. community is like being able to share those stories. That's one way we can help people come to terms with what truth is. And it's made me start to think, what if congregations could become incubators of democracy? What if mm. that is where we teach civics and that is where we teach critical race theory? You know, if yeah. only we could become, and, and the civil rights movement kind of modeled that. Well, they had and, Saturday and schools. That is one of the things, you know, I, as I preach around the country, that's what I'm saying. Actually, your congregation has a role to play yes, because you're a place where you can actually bring in and, and have knowledge as they hollow out libraries, yeah. yes. as they hollow out higher education, yep. as they erase history. Yep. This can be a place of actual learning. Yeah. Uh, um, Isn't that what do- happened with monasteries in the Middle Ages? Exactly. This is like, this is actually a tradition yes. that we can reclaim, <laughs> you know, but the uh, Diana Butler Bass was like, she had this idea of uh, um, every church should look around. What are the banned books in my community? Stock them up. Yes. You know, talk about getting yes. some traffic into your church. That would I be a love great that. way. I found uh, a church in Florida that was doing that. Yeah. They had one of those like little mobile libraries outside the church and a big sign about yes. it. Yeah. Come, yeah. And, and this is, I mean, part of the, what I, you know, part of this is religious freedom. Like, what is our religious freedom? Yes. You know, right. like there's a lot talked about with religious freedom. Yes. And it tends to, unfortunately, it tends to be now that if you talk to young people about religious freedom, they just think that you're going to be anti-queer. That's like the all that's that right. Is, you know, that's it's been reduced to that in such a massive way. Yes. Uh, and it's very sad because religious freedom can also be really right to vote. Right to have your make your own choices about your body and healthcare and and uh, reproductive uh, rights. So there's all sorts of ways that religious freedom needs. It's another thing that needs to be reclaimed. It is, and we and we and we need to we need to really remind people that actually religious freedom goes back to Quakers. Yes, and refuse you know saying I don't want to fight in your war. That's right. You know, I mean, that's, that's right. actually that's like right. you know, and so it's you know, there's lots of ways that religious freedom can be used in very good ways that doesn't isn't synonymous with discrimination. That's right. In fact, it's against discrimination by virtue of what it is. It's about the freedom of thought and the freedom to uh, be who you are and to do that without harming others. I mean, that's the key aspect I, I of it. See, it's like it requires thing. do no harm. It, but, but that's where the rubber hits the road. It harms me to, um, to take a picture of you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, that's, that's, right. What, that's what the Supreme Court just yeah. declared. Yeah. And so we are in a place where, like, you know, my family can be turned away. That's right. From a photographer just because they, you know, don't like my family. Yeah. And the danger in that, of course, is that it establishes that precedent and that foundation 
for discrimination and healthcare discrimination and housing and employment and life or death issues. Oh, and that's what they're going for. Well, but, but it also sets the stage for, a, you know, if if a queer artist, their sincerely held beliefs. Yes. I don't want to. I you you want to have a Christian wedding with a cross there? I don't. I don't ascribe to any yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, which that, is terrible. You know, like so. Yeah. Do, so I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna you know sign on to your lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, it, because you know, and I talked to Interfaith Alliance, the, the director of uh, advocacy and policy, and she's a lawyer and also went to Harvard Divinity, and she's like, the way this is written, I don't see where it stops. Yeah. And so this is like the unraveling of society. It's it, it is the it's like we're not going to deal with each other, and that and then that part of encounter that you were talking about, we lose that encounter. It, it's that's, and maybe that's what they're really after, right? With these strategies, the culture war is not so much about the issues per se, you know, because like the Southern Baptist Convention had a, a pro-choice policy in the seventies. It's it's not even about that. It's about factionalizing society and that's how autocrats come to power when there's no shared truth mm. and there's no ability to dialogue and talk to each other mm. and that again is, is still why i go back to continue to try to talk to people mm. we eventually have to get there because what they want to do is divide us through fear right right so i like to um end every uh conversation on a hopeful note, we've oh, talked. Yes. We've, we've had hopeful moments in this conversation, really dire ones. <laughs> Let's end it on a hopeful one. Uh, what um, What gives you hope right now? You know, being at the Parliament of World Religions has been just marvelous. I've never been before, and I'm you know as I walk through the hallways, I'm just getting a ton of great feedback on these presentations that I did. It's not so much about that, but like people are resonating. There is a shared truth here, and there are people willing to go to great lengths to implement a world in which human dignity is respected and where everybody can flourish. And so I'm just reminded as I get out and I, again, you know, continue to build broad relationships at the goodwill that exists in the world. We may never have as much money and as much power as all these other folks, you know, that are against human rights and human dignity. But what we do have is our commitment and our vision our deep spiritual grounding and our ability to partner and, and truly um, join, join hands together in the struggle. And I think that that will go a long ways to defeating tyranny. Reverend Jennifer Butler was the founding executive director at faith in public life for 17 years. She was there. Her books include who stole my Bible reclaiming scripture as a handbook for resisting tyranny. And you can hear her conversation about that book with the late Welton Gaddy at stateofbelief.com. Reverend Jen, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. This is very important as part of our new partnership with Religion News Service, distributing and expanding this show, please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. 
I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook at State of Belief and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with Texas State Representatives James Tallarico and Salman Bajani. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.